0: Tonight's scripture reading is from the letter to the Hebrews, uh, starting at chapter 4, verse 14, and finishing at the end of chapter 5. If you want to follow along in your pew Bibles, you can find it on page 1203, 1203, Hebrews 4, verse 14, Jesus the Great High Priest. Let us listen to God's word. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest for ever, in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food." Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. And we thank God for his word to us. Amen.
1: You'll uh, find Hebrews 4. Let me give you a moment to do that. As you're looking up Hebrews chapter 4, we're looking from verse 14 onwards down to 5, 14 tonight. Let me pray for us as we come to God's word. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Father God, as we come and explore something of what it is for Christ to sit, sit at your right hand, we pray that you'll help us to see more of Jesus tonight. And that we will love him and follow him more closely, we pray, because of that. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to your word tonight, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And please have a Bible open with you. Last week in chapter three of Hebrews, we saw that God's promise of eternal rest still stands. And verse eleven um, of chapter three, or, or chapter four, sorry, encouraged us to make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following the example of the wilderness generation who, through disobedience, did not enter the rest of the promised land. And chapter uh, 3 and 4 sign off with a very worrying, at times, understanding of this, where it reminds us that nothing is hidden from God's sight. Everything is laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And there was a sense on the way home last week in which I thought of that chapter that we did would leave you asking the following questions, and I hope it did in some ways. How do you know if you will enter God's rest? Do you have the question in your mind, what if I fall short through my own sinfulness and weaknesses? And these questions could have left you last week making you feel unsure, uncertain in your faith, and even alone, because they center on what you can do and who you are. But what we have in chapter 4, open in front of you tonight, uh, verse 14 to 510, are words of encouragement for us this evening, because did you know you have a priest? You have a priest tonight. Did you know that? It's not Brian Darcy, or any of the other famous ones, or the singing priests in Newton Arts. It's a different type of priest. And the question you have is, what kind of priest do I have? what kind of priest do I have? Because verse 14 of chapter 4 says this, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. We're not alone, not unaided, not unrepresented. In fact, we have Jesus, the Son of God, The opening few chapters of Hebrews have been showing us the supremacy of Jesus as the Son of God. But here in these verses, we're given more about him. And he is called the great high priest. Do you see it? Who has ascended into heaven. Who has gone through the clouds in another version. And the beauty of this verse is that, do you recall how the Apostles' Creed kind of captures this Jesus ascending? It says this. Verse 14 says to you, if you have questions about whether you will enter the rest, whether your own sinfulness and weakness will stop you entering the eternal rest, verse 14 says to you tonight, we have Jesus, the Son of God, our great high priest who has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. The whole idea, I'm sure you're familiar with this, of sitting is the idea of completion, It's like a day's work, isn't it? You don't sit down until you finish your day's work, generally, unless you have a nice, cushy office job. But that's what happens, isn't it? If you're on a construction site, you come home, and you sit down, and it's complete. And that is the idea here, that Jesus, the Son of God, has ascended into heaven, and he now sits at the right hand of the Majesty on high. His work is complete. And this picture of Jesus being ascended could give you the impression, though, of him being far removed from us. You know, and many of us think like that, don't we, in our world today? Their view of God is that he's some austere, remote being who has no understanding of what life is like in this world. God doesn't understand the trials and testings, the temptations, the weaknesses connected with living in this world or in this body. And yet verse 15 says this. Do you see it? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Here in verse 15, the scriptures teach us that we have in Jesus a high priest who knows our weaknesses, our frailties, our propensity to be tempted. How is it possible for him to know that? How is it possible for that great image of Jesus being ascended sitting at the right hand of the Father, and yet able to say to us that he understands us, he can sympathize with us. And the reason is because of chapter 3, verse 17, where it taught us that Jesus was made like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Jesus, God the Son, became flesh and blood, and with that he experienced trials testing and temptations of life just like we do. Have you ever thought about that? That this is the Christian God who understands what it is to be tempted, go through trials and testing, and because of that, he understands. He can sympathize with our weaknesses The word sympathize here captures the idea of that of a mother and child who understands their child, has empathy with them, feels for them when they're hurt. And so it is with Jesus, our great high priest. The major difference, though, is that the trials and testing and temptations of life didn't cause Jesus or make him sin in any way. But that doesn't take away from the fact that he felt the heat of the battle felt the pressures and the stresses of those weaknesses. Peter O'Brien in his commentary says this, his own experience of suffering and trials during his earthly life equip him so that he's able to support his people in their suffering and temptations. And so tonight, we have a high priest who is Jesus who has ascended into heaven. We have Jesus the high priest who knows our weaknesses and can sympathize with us. And for those of you who are tempted to give in to the trials and the testing of life, Jesus knows tonight and is able to support you. For those who are defeated, beaten down by all sorts of weaknesses, whether it's at work or in the body, Jesus knows and is able to support you. That's what he's claiming those two beautiful pictures of Jesus ascended, sitting at the right hand of God, but also Jesus who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. That is unique to the Christian faith. Allah doesn't have that ability. He's far removed, impersonal. Yet the Christian God says he's ascended, but able to sympathize. And if this is the great high priest that Christians have then, we're to do something in response to it. Do you see it in verse 16? Verse 16 where it says there, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our times of need. The throne of grace that is referred to here is God's presence. It is that drawing near, come us, come into the presence of God with confidence. How do we do this? It's true prayer. You come into the grace and the throne of God through True prayer. Do you remember the Old Testament priest, and we'll hear more about these later, he had to go behind the veil in the sanctuary? Do you remember when Jesus died, that curtain was torn in two from top, top to bottom, emphasizing that the pres, into the presence of God was open? Prayer brings us into the throne of God's grace. And the question is, what confidence can we have as we approach? Many of us might be here tonight, you know, going, I have no confidence to enter God's holy presence. What confidence can we have? It is not our own goodness. It is not our own um, abilities or greatness. No, rather we draw near. And turn with me for a moment, will you, to chapter 10. And we'll see why we can draw near. In chapter 10, verse 19. Just flick over so that you have it open in front of you. In chapter 10, verse 19, this beautiful passage tells us why we can have confidence to draw near to God. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance of faith, Bring, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see it? Do you see who's over the house of God? It is the high priest who is Jesus. We have a high priest over God's house, one who has ascended, sitting at the right hand of God, one who knows our weakness, and one who can sympathize with us. And so we draw near because of him and to him to receive mercy and grace through prayer. Again, O'Brien makes a helpful little comment on what mercy and grace is. He says this mercy may focus on the assurance that past transgressions have been dealt with. Grace may point to inner strengthening to endure testing. And if you're being tested, as these people were through persecution, possibly, the two things you need is mercy, knowing that you're forgiven but also that inner strength to keep going, to endure the testing that is at, is at hand. We have a high priest who has made a provision for us. We approach his throne of grace in prayer. And so the question is, that so often, why is it that we run the opposite way? Why is it that so often when testing and trials and pressures come on, we go the opposite way? We try to figure it out, try to get our heads around it, rather than coming to that throne of grace where we may receive mercy and grace. These verses are an amazing verse. And tonight they summarize for us that great high priest who is Jesus, who is able to sympathize with us, give us grace and mercy to those who draw near. Can I encourage you tonight, as you face trials and testings currently, or a couple of months down the road, or a couple of years into your life or your family life, hold on to the fact that he is ascended, that he can sympathize with you, that he can show mercy and grace to you in your time of need. The author of Hebrews then takes us into verses one to four in chapter five. Do you see it where where he has it, where he goes one to four? And for some reason, he comes back into the everyday high priest of the Old Testament and into the new. And the author takes us and he shows us the background of what qualified a person to be a high priest and what their role was in verses 1 to 4. And I want to briefly go through these verses, verses 1 to 4, and then spend more time on 5 to 10. Firstly, you'll see in verse 1 that the high priest was selected, do you you see it there, from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters relating to God. This was particularly true when the temple building was constructed. The high priest would represent the people in the role and duties he performed in the temple on behalf of the people. The priest had a mediatorial role between God and the people. He was one of their own, from their own group. He would have offered gifts and sacrifices of various kinds on behalf of the people. And so that's one aspect of the human every high priest that there was. The second one is in verse 2. The high priest was to deal gently either with those who needed instruction or with those who were going astray. An example of this, do you remember, is with Hannah in the Old Testament. Do you remember Hannah when she came into the temple? What did the priest suspect her of doing? Having a little tipple, drinking. And he almost takes her on because he saw her praying and she thought she had been drinking. And he goes, goes for her. But then he realizes that, no, actually, she's praying, and he gently instructs her. And this was the role of the high priest. They were to instruct those who needed it, but for going astray, they were to instruct them back as well. And the role was one of instruction, which showed them how to live and worship God, and he exercised this role with gentleness, not out of anger or frustration with the people. He wasn't on a pedestal. And the reason he wasn't on a pedestal was because he dealt gently with them because, as the verse says, he himself was subject to weakness too. He was just like them. So how could he deal aggressively with them, but rather calmly and gently? So the high priest was selected as a representative. The high priest was to deal gently with the people. Verse 3, the high priest was a sinner just like the people he represented. And so when it came to offering sacrifices... He made atonement for the people's sins, but also his own. And that was what he had to do. Fourthly, in verse 4, we see that the high priest was called by God to the role. A person didn't take this role on themselves for the honor of it. The author of Hebrews mentions Aaron, who along with his sons became high priests. And if you go back into Exodus 28, you'll read about the calling of Aaron. And three times in those verses... Exodus 28, 1-4, you'll see that the Lord calls for Aaron to be anointed so that he may serve me as a priest. God was the one that called him to the role of priest. And so the high priest represented the people before God. The high priest had to deal gently with the people, not out of anger or frustration. The high priest was a sinner and the high priest was called by God. These were the qualifications and the role of the high priest throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. These qualifications and roles were set out by God himself. And Raikkonen in his commentary says this about this human high priestly office. He says this, he was in solidarity with his people. He was one of them. He was a real link between them and God. He was in such sympathy with them that he could always deal gently with them. He was the product of divine selection, free from ego. He was selected to serve. The ideal high priest was a man of incomparable attractiveness. Do you see the role that he had? It was so key. Represent Jesus. Deal gently with the people. Serve them. And he was the ideal high priest between God and man. But attractive and all as the ideal human high priest was they always fell short in some way in exercising their role and duties. You can read about some in the Old Testament that were struck down because of their behavior. It was always temporal. There was always another one to come. It was never forever. And deep down the role of the high priest in the Old Testament was pointing forward to one who would come that would be the great high priest forever, who would perform this role and be the perfect high priest And that is what we find in verses 5 to 10. Do you see it there where Jesus comes and he fulfills the role of the high priest to become the great high priest that we all need once and for all. Firstly, we see in verses 5 to 6 that Jesus, the Son of God, is also a priest forever. Do you see the phrase? In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. These two quotations from the, from the Psalter, one is taken from Psalm 2 verse 7, where God declares his father and son relationship with Jesus, the royal son. Psalm 2, we've already had in chapter 1, where it endorsed Jesus as the Son of God. The next quotation then is Psalm 110, verse 4, where it speaks of Jesus as a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, who's this boy? Where does he come out of? Melchizedek, I'm going to land this on Jeffrey. We'll hear more about in two weeks' time, all right? In chapter 7, there's a whole chapter taken over with him and Jesus, But his first appearance comes where? In Genesis 14. Do you remember that? When Abraham won this savage battle, which he shouldn't have won, but he did. And then this guy Melchizedek appears and offers um, Abraham some goods. And this is what Genesis 14 verse 8 says. It talks of Melchizedek in the following way. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, which means probably Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. And then this is what it says. He was the priest of God most high. Melchizedek is a mysterious character, but described as a priest. Without history or people coming after him, it's it's an unusual character. And yet the author of Hebrews, through the Messianic, Messianic Psalm of 110, makes the claim that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, a priest forever. Different from the normal priesthood, which was temporal and had succession. Jesus' priesthood is without ending and beginning. It will always be there. You see, Jesus' priesthood would not stop because of time or succession, but would be one forever. And so what we see in verses 5 and 6 is the author binding together Jesus' sonship and the priesthood together, once and for all. They're inextricably linked together. The Son of God and the High Priest put together. And that's what we have here in verses 5 and 6 through those quotations. And the author of Hebrews wants us to grasp this, that Jesus, the Son of God, is also the high priest who will be the high priest forever. Then we see in verse 7, the humanity of Jesus and his solidarity with people. It says that during the days of his earthly life, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death and he was heard because of his reverent submission. The verse takes us back to that night before Jesus died when he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. Mark's gospel records the anguish that came over Jesus. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said. Stay here and watch with me, Peter, James, and John. Going a little further, Jesus fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus asking for the cup of suffering to be taken from him, but his submission to the will of God is supreme. And so what we see here is Jesus' anguish, his testing, the trials that were coming into his life, And in verse 8, we see that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. This verse doesn't mean that he was disobedient and then became obedient, but rather that as trials and testing and suffering came into his life, as he faced them each time, it meant a fresh challenge to be obedient to his Father's will. And boy, did Jesus face some tough challenges and suffering, and yet he was obedient, learned through his suffering. Can you see how this great high priest is able to understand weaknesses, understand the challenges we come up against in suffering and trials and hardship of life, which ask us, will we be obedient in knowing God and his ways? Jesus knows he learned obedience until he was made perfect. You see, in chapter 2, we learn that that made perfect means that whenever he was crowned with glory and honor. Jesus being made perfect refers to him being crowned with glory and honor. And now he's a source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. The challenge to us from this verse is our need to see the suffering and the hardships and trials of life Not as some inconvenience that has come to disrupt us, but rather as a means in God's hand to teach us what it means to be obedient followers of Him. That's the way Jesus embraced His suffering, His trials, His hardships in life. He learned obedience. And we're not alone as we seek to have this perspective. We have a great high priest who stands in solidarity with us, knows our weaknesses, ready to deal with us gently. When we come in prayer, he will show mercy and grace to his beloved people. And lastly, in verse 10, Jesus is designated by God to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus' role of high priesthood is pointed by God, and it is forever. So in summary, Jesus is our great high priest, and he's going nowhere. He will always exist and so he makes null and void the old priesthood and he's the one we look to for salvation for he's ascended and knows our weaknesses. Lastly and briefly tonight we come to verse 11 to 14 which I've entitled, Don't Get Hooked on Milk. Verse 11 to 14. When our kids were, were babies, say under six months old, um, they were eventually put on bottles of milk. And that meant that I was more useful then. And so I could feed them. And I must say this, one of our kids loved their bottles of milk to such a degree that I would compare them almost like a newborn lamb. You, you, you probably had kids like this yourself, some of you, are seen it. Where you put the bottle in her mouth and she would suck it until it went dry, but when it was taken away, she would burst into tears because it was gone. And they loved the milk. They were hooked on it at this point. And sometimes we would tease them at the end by just taking it out a little bit and then shoving it back in. Yeah, we're mean parents. don't we? But that's what they were. But they loved the milk. They loved the bottle of milk. And here in verses 11 to 14, it seems that the recipients of this letter loved the milk too much. They were hooked on it. And the verse is very crass, isn't it? You see in verse 11 where it says they'd become lazy and instead of progressing onto solid food, like you would expect with an infant growing, they had remained stuck on the milk. And it's a weird kind of change in the pattern. And and chapter 6 will take more of this on. But here were Christians who had heard the elementary teaching of God's truth, the gospel message. And see how it says in verse 11, we have so much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. You become lazy or sluggish. They were no longer trying to understand how this gospel applied to their lives. They possibly knew it in their heads, but their heart and their lives are no longer trying to apply it to their thinking, behavior, attitude, and very existence. And there's a word that occurs at the end of verse 13, which says the word righteousness occurs at the end of verse 13. And it says there in verse 13, anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. And it seems here that they link the basic elementary teaching of the gospel as milk, and then the depth of knowing what that righteousness is with solid food. And Philip Reikman has a a wonderful explanation. I'm just going to read it to you about this righteousness. Those who would move beyond the milk stage and feed on the meat of God's word must first have a clear doctrinal understanding of the radical righteousness of God. They must understand that they are so radically sinful that their own works of righteousness can never save them and their only hope is the gift of righteousness from God through Christ. And what he's saying there is literally that we must all come to the understanding that we're radically sinful. Sinful in heart and attitude and mind from the moment we're born and that we cannot earn a righteousness that will make us right with God. However, if one is to increasingly feed on the solid word, there must be more than this doctrinal understanding of righteousness. There must also be practical righteous living these two together enable one to feed more and more on the solid work of God. And it seems with these, this passage here, they'd become lazy. They could tell you the gospel message. They could tell you how to be right with God. But the implications of it weren't being played out in their life. And the author of Hebrews explains in verse 14 that this type of Christian living is not easy. You can't just drift into this of knowing the gospel and then not having it applied to your life but it is true. See it in verse 14? Through constant use, it makes the gospel the solid food which helps in distinguishing from good and evil. And this is the danger for ministers. It's the danger for a congregation that has two services and is getting teaching every Sunday that we may know the gospel message, but we are not continuing to seek to understand how this applies to our life. And he says in here, We have so much more to tell you, but you no longer try to understand. You no longer try to see where this impacts your life, your attitude, your heart, your work, your family, your church life, your relationships. And he says, instead of being teachers now, you're still looking for the basic milk. And he says, this solid food and the way you apply helps us to grow by constant use. You train yourself. How does this apply to my life? How does this impact my relationships? How does this apply to my thinking, my attitude? How easy it is to fall into this rut in the Christian life. Sometimes it comes through arrogance and pride. Other times it comes about through laziness and just sailing along. We give up on applying the righteousness of the gospel to all areas of our life and thinking. And next week, we'll see more of that in chapter 6. I started tonight by asking the question, did you know... You have a high priest, a priest. What kind of priest have you got? You have Jesus, who is our great high priest, whose true submission and obedience is the source of eternal salvation. You have a high priest who is the Son of God and a high priest forever. You have a priest who sits in heaven at the right hand of God, who is able to sympathize with your weaknesses who invites you to approach God's throne of grace in order to receive mercy and grace. We need to learn what it is to be dependent on on our high priest in prayer. But also don't become lazy and miss out on growing and maturing on continuing to apply the gospel in your daily lives. Let us rejoice and praise God that we have Jesus, our great high priest. Let me pray for us as we continue our service tonight. Father, we thank you tonight for that threefold office of Jesus, that he is our prophet, priest, and king. And tonight, Father, as we focus on him being the great high priest, we thank you for that majestic picture of Jesus being seated, ascended, and sitting at your right hand. Father, thank you that Jesus is the one who knows our weaknesses, yet he did not sin. Father, thank you that he encourages us to approach your throne of grace because of all that he has achieved at the cross so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Father, we pray, reshape our understanding of Jesus as priest. Help us, Lord, to see his power, to learn from him in his submission and what it was to be obedient through suffering. And Father, thank you that he is our eternal salvation. Father, help us and keep us from being lazy. Help us not to hide behind the gospel and not apply it to our lives. Help us to, as you've been teaching us last week, to let your word search us, and mold us and shape us, so that, Lord, we will mature and grow and know what it is to do right and good. Father, help us, we pray, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
2: At this point in our service, we're going to take a few minutes just to pray for others. And it was suggested to me that I might pray for people persecuted for their faith tonight. Uh, Bill was reminding us this morning, among many other things, that um, Jacob and his family, when they came to Egypt, were people who, although initially welcomed, were eventually persecuted for who they were, for being different, for having a different culture and a different faith. And today, we are only too aware that in the Christian church around the world, there are those who worship in secret, those who are jailed for their beliefs, and those who are forced to flee their homeland. I suppose the question is, how do we pray for, pray and bring these things to a God who, on one hand, we believe is fully in control, and yet at the same, we have to admit that his followers suffer? Damien has just reminded us that in Jesus we have a great high priest, a true advocate for us. And so I'm going to borrow a few words from King David in Psalm 108 and Psalm 102 and pray these things to him now. So join me together and let's pray. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love, higher than the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, among the heavens, and let your glory be over all the earth. Save us and help us with your right hand, that those whom you love may be delivered. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me when I am in distress. Turn your ear to me. When I call, answer me quickly. Let this be written for a future generation. That a people not yet created may praise the Lord. The Lord looked down from his sanctuary on high. From heaven he viewed the earth. To hear the groans of the prisoners. And release those condemned to death so the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when the peoples and the kingdoms assemble to worship the Lord. Amen.